All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today, the guest is Dr. John Deloney. Dr. John Deloney is a best-selling author, mental health expert, and host of the Dr. John Deloney Show. He holds two PhDs and over two decades of experience in counselling, crisis response, and higher education. He's the author of the best-selling books Own Your Past, Change Your Future, and Redefining Anxiety. His new book, Building a Non-Anxious Life, is now available, and honestly, this is a game-changer for how you understand and deal with anxiety in your own life. He's appeared on Fox News, Fox Business and Today. He's featured on the Royal Simple and Fast Company magazines as well as the Half Post. And he's been a guest on the Minimalist podcast, the Jordan B. Peterson podcast and the Mind Pump podcast. His goal is to help people navigate tough decisions, improve their relationships and believe their worth been well and loved. And now let's get to the interview. But thank you so much for coming on. You've been a dream guest of mine for quite a while now. If you had to give the cliche elevator pitch, what would you say? How do you sum up this amazing things that you do? Oh, man, I am a husband and a dad just trying to figure out what's the best way I can love my family and what's the best way I can be a citizen and uh, in a world gone mad. And um, I think that probably sums it up the best. Um, I I left a dream job and in a great career. Um, honestly, to be able to look at my kids when it's all said and done, to say, "Hey, your old man threw his hat in the ring to try to make the world a little bit a better place." And some people do that as firemen, and some people do that as plumbers, and some people do that as carpet cleaners. And I chose to get right in the middle of a messy. Uh, dumpster fire of a media ecosystem and see if we could provide some some clarity and some some calm peace to that madness and so um, that's what I mean I was trying to dad I'm just a dad trying to figure it out too well you're doing an awesome job of it I mean you're changing lives for your talk show you're you're motivating people you're inspiring them you're taking them out a dark hole that they thought there was no way out of it and you've even brought out a fantastic new book which I was very lucky to get a, a forward copy of it generally is a masterpiece. I love the prompts, the way that you lead people to find their own issue, you know, to come out of their issues, to find themselves, discover more about themselves. But what's your opinion currently on the, you know, the normal healing modalities when it comes to anxiousness, you know, anxiety, depression, etc.? And what led to the book coming out? You know, why why did you see the need for a book on this kind of topic in particular? I mean, I think the if you go in and you're diagnosed with a with an anxiety disorder, I think the treatments are, I mean, pretty effective uh, mm-hmm. across the board. Um, 
the bigger question I had, it was a light bulb moment for me a while ago. And I'm a nerd of nerds, man. Um, I was reading some nerd articles in my nerd little office in my house, in my basement. And office is a way over glamorization of what actually it is. But it's a little space in my basement where I was reading nerd articles. And it was this light bulb moment for me. More people than ever before in human history are under the care of a mental health provider right now. Mm. And more people than ever before in, in human history are being medicated for some sort of quote unquote mental health disorder. And yet the the statistics continue to come back and say we are anxious out of our minds we're depressed we're adhd we're ocd we're all of these clinical diagnostics and i just don't buy it that um we all broke at the same time and so the premise of the book really um and again i the mental health community that's still my gang that's my that's my tribe those are my people but i think the whole idea tends to rest on this notion that we're broken. There's something wrong with us. And if you're anxious, we can fix that. If you are depressed, we, we need to fix that. And so the, the, the book rests on a central premise. What if, what if our bodies aren't broken? What if they're working exactly as they were designed to? And anxiety and depression and ADHD are responses to chaos and to unsafe environments. What conversations would I have to have then? Because as a guy who wants to make X dollars and I want to have a house that looks like this and I want to have a, a job and a position that looks like this. What do I do when my body says, hey, that's not for us? Or we can't go about it given the fact that you treat your body this way, you're not healthy, that your marriage is falling apart, that your kids don't want to be around you, that you don't have the social skills or you find yourself lonely. What if our bodies are working exactly as they should? And so that was the central premise of the book. I don't think we're broken. I don't think that people are suddenly fell apart 150 years ago. I think we've created a world that our bodies simply can't exist in. And I've got two little kids, man. I have a vested interest in the outcome here. And so it was really me taking a step back and saying, um, I, I think we need to look at the problem differently. No, it's, it's a great way of looking at it because I've gone through depression. I've used um, fluoxetine. I've gone mm -hmm. CBT, talk therapy. And I remember sitting in, speaking to uh, psychologist and she said you're not your thoughts you know these are just intrusive thoughts these are things your brain is getting I was like, sorry what i because you associate that voice in your head as you that's your your personality that's what you need to do you don't realize and you always brain... tell the truth to yourself right you always mm -hmm. tell the truth to yourself because why would you lie to yourself right and you, and you don't realize your brain can be your worst enemy and it can be like a prison that you carry around and i think that's what a lot of guys though but you're taught to be strong dominant masculine mm -hmm. the the knobs like andrew tate oh you have to be the manly man and you can't ask for help and now when you look at all these guys are finally getting avenues like yourself your books to realize it's okay not to be okay how do you find men's health, um, you know, or just mental health in general? Do you see the sort of similarities of men that are coming in? Has technology ruined us, do you think? Because instead of taking us together and connection, it's built isolation. Are you seeing a difference in the anxiety now that we had, like to our, what our grandparents would have had? 
obviously they had wars, etc. Are we? Yeah, too yeah. Easy? I, I mean, well, there's actually some there's some pretty interesting conversations to be had around that. Um, I guess to be a nerd about it, I kind of reject the notion of mental health on its on its own. That's an academic bifurcation. There's no such thing as mental health and emotional health and physical health. Um, like I. I Man, I was trying to show off for myself the other day with a new fitness program, and I my sleep was awful, and I was in a hurry because I had spent a little bit longer spending time with my daughter in the morning before work, and I raced downstairs in my little gym I've built for myself in my garage, and I was trying to crank out my workout and get it done as fast as possible, and I hurt myself pretty profoundly doing squats, hurt my back, and I've always kind of rolled my eyes when people said I hurt my back. I'm like, oh, woe is you, you know, getting the, man, it's debilitating. I never had it happen. It's, it's, it's staggering. Right. But here's the thing that, that injury, someone's going to say, you need to go to a chiropractor. Well, actually you need to go to a knee specialist. Cause it's probably the way you're doing this. And it was, pro- man, we have just bifurcated and sliced and diced the human experience into so many little tiny squares. And then we outsource those to people who've gone to school for a hundred years to look at this one problem through a magnifying glass. And I tend to step back and think, man, my problem started when I prioritized X over Y, right? When I was hustling and hurrying, instead of saying to myself, you know what? It was actually on a longer, on a, on a long arc, because I'm not training for the Olympics probably would have been better to spend that 30 minutes with your daughter because y'all were having a great morning, but you broke that short so that you could tell yourself to hit these goals. Right. And so I think it's just stepping back and looking at this, a bigger picture. Um, it's very hard to quote unquote, deal with depression when you feel like your body's failing you, when you feel like your body's not doing what you want it to do. And your thought machine is up and at them when you've been abused your whole life. And now you found yourself in another romantic relationship. When you get fired, when all of the news channels are telling you that everything is coming down and that your particular nation of choice is failing underneath, like it's hard for your body to work in that environment. Right. And so, um, I, when I think about anxiety worse as it ever has ever been, my grandparents had a common a common narrative. They had a common story. They had a common mission. Um, I often say that, you know, we peace is now just something people stitch on a pillow or write on um, a little plaque and they put it in their bathroom. My granddad fought Nazis, man. Like, <laughs> he was a World War II veteran. I still don't fully know what he did. I think it was codes or something. I don't know. But it was him versus the Nazis and him and his team. They had a common mission. They knew peace was not that, right? We don't have that anymore. No. We identify our, our tribes with who we all hate together. We have no common place that we're all trying to get to other than where we're trying to get is you not there. And our bodies aren't designed for that. Our bodies are designed for purpose. Our bodies are designed for camaraderie, community, team, tribe, and to all be working towards a common thing. Um, under some sort of common belief structure and we have just nuked all of it and so yeah our bodies are spinning in space completely untethered and um, it's a madhouse and then the rise of like you talked about these internet figures that are telling a generation of exhausted frustrated anxious depressed men you know what you need to do 
is you need to rewind the clock about 250 years and be misogynist and flex a lot and and ask the world to bend to your will. That'll solve it. And man, if you're an exhausted, depressed, anxious young man, um, that's pretty enticing. It's a pretty enticing trail, and it will end in a pile of bodies. It does every time. Just read a history book. Because it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like, oh, you don't have a war, your generation, so you're weak. And people that struggle, we don't know who to ask, so we follow somebody that looks manly, that plays up to the media representation of masculinity, etc. But then you start noticing, this isn't me. And I remember reading somewhere that depression is like your body saying it needs a deep reset of the character you've been playing. You need to find mm. yourself. You need to play, be your true self. And I think that's what I really like about your book, where instead of just following like these pickup artists, the you know that play a character, play a routine, you're actually telling people to do the the inner work, face the demons, and deal with it. How do you get people to start feeling that understanding they can change? that it, they're not fixed mindset, that they, they're um, fluid, that they can change, and finding that confidence to start dealing with the emotional trauma, the all the, the pent-up aggression, pent-up worry, emotion, deep-seated jealousy, etc. How, how do you start moving that? I think you have to paint a picture, an honest picture, of what life could look like, and not a Hollywoodized one. And not a Playboy pinup one, and not a Andrew Tate picture, because that's fantasy. It's John Wick. It's not real. Hmm. Um. So often the picture is this hyper masculine, hyper hyper beef caked up. And by the way, I grew up in Texas. I've been around guns my whole life. It's not even like I don't understand. I don't understand. I, I, I exercise. It's not a matter of of throwing away things. That it's like, oh, you're just no. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think it's starting not from what this looks like painting a picture, but what does this feel like? And I've sat with people who have net worths that are so far beyond me that I'll never, ever, ever, my great grandkids couldn't catch them. And I ask them, what do you want it to feel like when you walk in your front door? Not like, what do you want your wife to look like? And what do you want your house to look? What do you want to feel like? And almost to a person, they say something around the words of, I want there to be warmth. I want my home to feel warm. I want to mm-hmm. walk in and not tense up. I want to drop my shoulders. And if you ask me, I want that, that, that resonates with me. I want to go home and be happy that I'm there. I want there to be laughter in my home. I want my wife to flick water at me when I walk by. I want my daughter to come running at me with a pillow and a stick. And I'm in some imaginary sword fight that I didn't even know I was in. I want to be able to throw a wet rag at my son and he's in middle school and he'd throw it back. And that's part of the ethos of our home. So what do I have to do in order for that to be true? And it's not go flex a lot and it's not go earn a billion dollars. Earning a billion dollars might be a byproduct of solving a a great need in my local community or in my country or in the world. Awesome. Knock your lights out, dude. But my promise is, um, if your goal is just to get a dollar amount, you'll get it. You'll figure it out and you'll look around and your kids aren't going to want to come home and your wife will have had to carve out another life for herself because you cheated on her with ambition and you cheated on her with stuff, right? 
And so it's just asking yourself, what do you want your world to feel like, man? And I got to paint you a different picture. Does jealousy feel good? Yeah, for about 10 seconds. You feel self-righteous and powerful and strong. And then what? And then you feel less than. The world resets itself and reality presents itself. Like what What if, right? What if you, you tried something else? Because what you're doing is not working, right? All that starts with painting a different picture. Because you see that, don't you? It's like when you're younger, you want the money, you want the fame, you want the girls, you want the casual sex, whatever it is. But as you get older, you start realizing what's worthwhile in life. And I think that's the sad thing is we learn that at such a late stage. You know, we kind of yeah, learn but that. I, th- I, I, I think we want those things, but I think more than that, those are symptoms. Hmm. I think at a young age, especially young men in a world that has completely abandoned them, I think we want to not feel like us. We don't want to feel so left out and crapped on and we're the worst. We're the problem of every problem in the earth is because of us. And we don't want to be our dads because dad's too busy or dad is wondering why mom doesn't like him because the world has shifted underneath him and she has adapted and changed and he hasn't. We don't have a picture. So what we don't want to feel is lost and confused and so what do we do? We go to Google now. We used to go to our older brothers or that cool kid in the neighborhood. The story's been the same throughout history. I need to not feel like this. What's the avenue? Sweet. Muscles. I'll get them. What's the avenue? Women. I'll get them. Right? What are this casual sex all the time? And what you find on the other side of that is that's just as hollow. It's just as hollow, if not oh, yeah. more so, because now you have shame. You've got a trail of people you've hurt along the way. And so what if, and this is something I'm trying to break in my whole, my own home. What if my son knows that my dad is fair? My, I see my dad exercise every day. I see how my dad treats my mom. I know one thing. That when hell comes for me, my old man will be right there. What if my son could anchor into that and then rappel off the side of the world and go solve some of the world's big problems instead of sprinting over the side without a parachute, diving off because he'll show me. One of those is infinitely sustainable. The other one of those, man, congratulations, you got your medal. And I'm going to golf clap for you. And now you got a lonely 30, 40, 50, 60, and 70 until you die of a disease of despair because nobody wants to be around you. It's just a reimagination, and I don't think it starts with kids. I'm just not in the business of blaming kids. I'm in the business of blaming the adults in the room, myself included. Let's be about the change, and the change starts with relationship and modeling what healthy masculinity looks like, what healthy strength and healthy good men look like, right? That's where, that's, that's where the conversation has to begin. That really hit home because it's partly why I started the podcast because I didn't feel like – I wasn't like these people that was, oh, I'll go pick this girl, cocky, brush. And I started looking going, that's not me. And I've, I struggled for many generations, like just year after year. And when my nephew, the oldest nephew was born, I realized that I wanted a better world for him. So I started to try to find these people, make a better self so I could be a better brother, uncle, etc. And now I love the fact I can introduce but my audience, it sounds so pompous, to people like yourself who <laughs> bring out these amazing books. I mean, you were the first person that mentioned how anxiety is, it's an alarm call 
that like that's shouting at you that something isn't right here. It's a message. It's it's like a messenger to mm-hmm. what's happening. It's not the actual problem. You go to a doctor. I'm anxious. They'll give you a beta blocker. You know, mm-hmm. on you go because they haven't got the time to give you long term checks and analysis and all these sort of things. Do you find then that we don't understand anxiety for what it is? And that's why you needed to sort of, you know, explain it so beautifully in your book that guys are not, we're dealing with the problem, not the actual message behind the problem. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts from people don't want to feel like this anymore and I don't want to feel like this. And we have a culture that's addicted to comfort. Hmm. We have pathologized our chief demon of our time is being uncomfortable. That's everybody wants to avoid discomfort. They want to avoid looking across the aisle to a political opponent and go, actually, I think your plan might work. We don't want that. And so we go to war, even if it's in our best interest. It's ridiculous. Um, We don't look at our wives and our girlfriends and say, you're right. I've been treating you like a car engine trying to fix you. You didn't need that. You're actually smarter than me. You needed me just to sit with you. And I'm uncomfortable in that silence because I feel useless. I'm sorry. We don't know how to do that, right? And so we go to the doctor and say, I don't feel good. I don't like this feeling. And they do what they're trained to do. I was trained to do. What we're all trained to do. How long have you been feeling? And give me an explanation of the feelings. And if it matches a certain chart and a certain graph and a certain timeline, they stamp a piece of paper. You have this, whatever this happens to be. And that allows them to get paid by the insurance company. And that gives you some sort of instant relief. Oh, I have a thing. Whew. And they say there's 50 different medications we're going to try because there is no tried and true one for one size fits all. We're going to throw spaghetti up against the wall and you let me know in the next two months, six months, um, how this is working. And um, if you feel like you're going to hurt yourself, call this number and then they're on to the next. And so um, it is a relief off the bat to be diagnosed with something, to be labeled with something. Um and I think it can be helpful to name the dragon. Um, and also, it's way easier than sitting down and saying, what in the world is going on in your life that this is how your body is choosing to respond to the chaos? Let's talk about that. That takes time. It's long. It's laborious. Um, I often don't even know that I'm carrying around messages from my childhood and trying to act them out as an adult. And my body's like, whoa. And so I think it's something, right? So, yeah, it's hard. And, um, that's why I always want to go back to what if, just what if, what if your body's not broken? What if it's mostly working as it could, as it should? You hear that, don't you? People kind of accept as a badge of honor. Oh, he's just the ADH kid. He's the hyperactive, Mm. you know? And I think that's the thing is we, we don't understand that our behaviors are shaped by our upbringing, by how we saw love in, in our family, how we saw masculine traits pass between men in the family. Because my mother is one of the most loving people, unconditional love will go out of way for anybody. Where my dad is very, he came from a family where they're very emotionally cold they kind of struggle to kind of express their emotions and things like that. So I kind of see it from both sides and I feel like I've got two different parts of me sometimes playing when I react. And I sometimes feel like you struggle to rise above the automatic behavior. And I think you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. Yeah, it was a Dr. Brewster, the trigger reaction behavior. 
Oh, Judd Brewer. He's yeah, he's the he's the goat when it comes to the actual neuroscience behind um anxiety. He's he's amazing. Um but yeah, I he, I, I I um quoted him in the book, I actually quoted his editor who was reading it talking about um man, people wear their anxiety as a badge of honor. It's a hall pass. Yeah. Right? Hey, sorry I was late. I've got this thing. Sorry I snapped at you. I've got this thing. And sorry that fill in the fill in the blank because I've got this thing. And how much easier for me is as a parent to say, uh, my kid's acting like that because he has fill in the blank, fill in the blank instead of the harder question, which is I really want to make X amount of dollars. And I really, that, and that means I'm going to be gone this much. And my little boy is asking himself 24, seven, 365. What's, why is that shiny little box he holds in his pocket more important than me? Why does he make more eye contact with that shiny little box? Why does he call those clients back? And I'm trying to show him my story I just wrote. I'm trying to tell him about the T-ball game I had. And he's like, yeah, 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 hold on. This is more important. And as a man, I can tell myself I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my kids. And there's some truth to that. There's some honest to God truth to that. And I'm also doing it for my freaking ego. Because I don't have the skills. Here's a funny story, um, or actually a sad story. So I worked in higher ed forever, in, in universities forever. And I was a leader. I had, I had, in some points, hundreds of people reporting up through me. And the cachet, right, was butt time in seats. I need to be the first one there. I need to be the last one out. I was really the first one there. Um, and that's a problem we're still working on, of timeliness. But be seen a lot. And often I would stay very, very late. Reading articles, getting caught up on emails, whatever. So I transition over to this company. And my boss, Dave, comes through. And it's seven o'clock at night and he did a late media hit and he stops by and where I'm, my desk is. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm working on this mental health thing. I was reading a fancy article out of a fancy journal. I was doing something for my work. And he said, go home. And I laughed because I told my employees to go home too. Right after I gave them a big project due tomorrow. I was like, y'all should just go on home, see your families. And they're like, well, thanks, genius. You just gave me this project to do. <laughs> but I said, oh, I will, I will. And he goes, no, 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 no go home. And then here's what he said. He said, if you're no good there, you will be no good here. Go home. And I was like, whoa. And then a couple of weeks into going home and the workday was over, I realized I don't have the skills in my toolkit to be a dad from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. I know how to come in at seven, stand up and eat my dinner that I missed because I was late doing quote unquote important things. And I know how to make some jokes with my son and wrestle around with my daughter and make sure everybody gets in bed. And I, I know how to do that. I didn't know how to just kick a soccer ball back and forth mindlessly forever. I didn't know how to help with math homework. I didn't know how to check grades. I didn't know how to do these things. And so I lied to myself and said, since I don't know how to do that, that's somebody else's job. I'm going to go do this thing. And I work became my mistress, right? Work became my addiction. And so I think it's about stepping back and saying, what's the ultimate goal here? Don't make a great living for me and my family and change my family tree financially. Absolutely. I also have to know that if your dad hasn't called you and said he's proud of you, that call's not coming when you get a million dollars. It's just not. Um, if you think you can abandon your wife and kids in an effort to go make money and then circle back and be like, look, everybody, they will have created a life without you period. And so ask yourself at the end of the day, what really matters? 
what really matters. And yes, there are people who dedicate their life to um, the military. Um, I've spent some time with Jocko. He's awesome. And he's exactly who he says he is. There's a group of men throughout all human history who have dedicated themselves to the preservation of a nation, to preservation of their families, and they could do amazing things. Awesome. And that comes at a cost. Comes at a cost. And so, um, I don't know, I could talk all day about this, man. You're asking some great questions. I think ultimately we have to ask ourselves, what are we, what are we doing? What are we looking for? And just remembering that whatever you get, you go with you. You will... If you don't like yourself with 50,000 bucks, you are not going to like yourself with 500,000 and you're going to be a lot more stressed and have a lot more issues. Because that's, I remember my mom saying that is if you're not happy single, you're not going to be happy in a relationship. You know, 1, you don't like yourself now. You know, you're not going to like yourself as a millionaire. And I think that's the beauty of the book. There's literally a podcast worth of each topic. What, how do you judge then anxiety, the warning signs? How do you know what is suitable anxiety? for growth you know to challenge to mold to evolve to you know etc and what is whoa 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 that's a fire that needs to put out it's not part of your personality that's going to make you lonely and happy suicidal or potentially dead how do we juggle between the two and understand what's a warning and what's a, a chance for growth that's a great question um I'm going to give you a very countercultural answer, if that's all right. Um, I love it. <laughs> I don't. I don't think we are great judges of that on our own, and I think it's a fool's errand to pretend that um, I can enter into the war that is life and have no eyes in the sky. That's why I mean, one of the most important starting places in the book and just in life is you have to have a group of people to do life with. Period. And I know that we have created the loneliest generation in human history. And so for many of us, that starts with a therapist or a coach or a pastor. Great. I don't care. A teacher, an instructor. I don't care. You have to have somebody watching your flank. You got to have somebody at a 30,000 foot view watching from a satellite, seeing how you do life. And so I've got a group of men that I trust and they're scattered across the country, a couple locally, um, several in my home state of Texas. And I've given them full permission. If you see me post something, if you see me say something, if you hear me on the phone, uh, if you if we visit, get together, you have permission. Not only permission, my expectation is you will call my, out my blind spots that I can't see. Because what I know is through the neuroscience, when my body detects threats, my critical thinking days are over. My body is in fight or flight or freeze. It's trying to keep me alive. It is not trying to decipher is this good or is this bad? It just says, there's a bear over there, run, right? Or there's a bear over there, pick up a stick and let's go to war. Um, and what your community will do for you is give you some nuance. Hey man, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not a bear. That's our friend. He just needs to shave, right? <laughs> he's, he's all right. <laughs> and so for some of us, and this is the thing that is, is tough about diagnostic of, of anxiety. For some people, when they get really anxious, their mind goes blank. For some people, when they get really anxious, they just have those ruminating, looping thoughts that never, ever, ever, ever stop. Some people get that warmth feeling in their stomach and it, their body starts to slowly shut them down. Some people, when they get really anxious, they get really amped up and start speaking really fast and their heartbeat gets up. So everybody experiences it differently. Do you have one or two or five or six people that can say, yo, 
come over. We're getting nachos and a drink. You're not all right. Or we're going for a run or we're going for a walk or, hey, we're going to watch a comedy show and you're coming with us. That's what you got to have. And so I think the the culture wants me to say, here's the four answers to four steps to know if you're if you are. I think that's nonsense, man. you got to have a group of people mm-hmm. that will reach out to you and love you enough to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You are uh, you're starting to be old, John, again. And we both remember this, dude. And it didn't end well. It didn't end well. What's going on? You got to have that. Because I'm like that right now. I've kind of moved away from old friends who just want to go into the pub. But I've not found the people to replace that. And I've definitely, and because I, oh, I'm doing the podcast, I'm meeting these amazing people. I created a, a scene of isolation. And a lot of people, there was a report, I don't remember where it was from, and it was like 70% of guys questioned and said they don't have a best friend. They don't have somebody that yeah. could go and speak to them, you know, and pull them off the, off the ledge, so to speak. Is there a way of starting to build that? Because, you know, you've got the six amazing frameworks. You've got the the mindfulness and all these sorts of things. But how do we start finding these people? You know, if this is the key, how would you advise somebody to start finding somebody if they don't have that friends in their life right now? Um, that was actually the book I was sitting down to begin to work on was there is no roadmap for 36 year old <laughs> so to go make friends. Right. And I'll just, I mean, there's, there's a reason why most of us guys, every time we get together with our high school mates or our college buddies, we just tell the same football stories over and over again, or the same that remember that time you got drunk at the club and hit that dude. And we all pile, you just tell the same stories because for most of us, that was the last time we were part of something bigger than ourselves. There's a reason why my military buddies all get together and they just all go back and start telling stories again from the past. Because when you are a part of a community that will literally take a bullet for each other, you train for that. And then you get out and you get a job selling software and you move into a suburban neighborhood and your neighbor is this dude in 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 boat shoes and black socks pulling his trash cans down the sidewalk. And he's like, hey, you know, your Ned Flanders neighbor. Dude, that's a di- that's a control alt delete right you know what friendship feels like and even if um i think this is especially hard for folks who are transitioning out of uh dependence on alcohol some of those bar buddies dude they will go to jail for you right they they some of them have gone to jail for you it's really hard to say hey uh this isn't a life that i want I want peace. I want warmth in my home. I want to remember the nights when I go out. I want a, uh, I want something different. But man, meeting a new friend. So the only here's here's the thing. I'll be as honest as I can. The only um, path forward that I've been able to find so far is 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 as follows. Number one, you have to go first. Stop waiting on somebody to reach out to you. You've got to go first. Invite that dude at work. Um, I bought six tickets to a concert tonight, a, a, a comedian tonight, and I literally just got on the horn at work and know some people like stand up comedy. It's like, hey, y'all want to come with me? Here's the tickets. One of them I even gave away, right? And it was really, really expensive. It's worth it to me to have um, a gang. It's gonna, we're gonna go tonight. A couple of these guys I've hung out with, a couple of these guys I've never hung out with. My guess is when it's over, we'll have all shared some great laughs. We'll have learned about each other. And I will connect a little bit deeper with one or two more. Like, oh, really? You vote like that? Oh, sweet. Me too. And we will begin to have that conversation. Um, for others, I think men especially need to engage in some sort of action. Stand, you know, the old saying, 
women make friends kneecap to kneecap and men make friends shoulder to shoulder. Um, I think it's about, I'm going to ser- sign up for a service project. Hey, uh, I had some buddies in Texas. They did this rad thing. Every uh, month they would get together at somebody's house at six or seven or eight o'clock on a Saturday morning. And the rule was you put everything you need done and 20 guys are going to show up and knock it all out. You need to change those outlets. You need to fix your bumper. You need to paint this back room. You need to level the yard. They would come and descend upon it. And what happened over the course of six or nine or 10 months was everyone kind of started learning a little bit of basic electric electrical work. And yeah. most everybody got a pick like, oh, that's how you change a tire. Okay. And whoever was still there at two or three in the afternoon when they were done, they got their name put in a hat and everybody drew a name out. And if whoever's name got drawn out, um, that's who they were there in a month. And so what happened over time? Oh, by the way, you had to bring your kids because we had to model for our kids. Here's what friendship looks like. And here's what uh, adults doing things with other adults. Here's what service looks like. Our kids don't have a picture of that. And so you'd have a house full of knuckleheaded kids and you'd have some beer and some pizza and you'd have a bunch of dudes doing a bunch of different things. And over time, you would be shoulder to shoulder with somebody this month and then next month and then the month after that. And then someone would finally say, hey, man, how's it going? And you could say, hey, man, my mom's got cancer. And now we're off to the races, right? And so I wish there was some big formula. Go first, be weird and uncomfortable, put yourself in wonky situations and understand the fail rate will be very high and you're worth it every time. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because that's how it is. Like, I remember you had a guest who phoned in and said, I don't think I deserve friends. I don't feel like I'm worthy yeah. for friends. Nonsense. It's, it's, nonsense. Heart, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's like that there are people now who are sitting so lonely. You know, the best time for them is the day at work because they get human contact. And I know what that's like coming home to, like after being up, seen family and surrounded by noise and love, and suddenly you come back <laughs> to your city five hours away and you go, what, what am I doing here? You know, and it's, yes, it's, it's yes. soul destroying. And I, I mean, hey, can I, I tell come... you this? Um, I... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I come from a, a village, like a Highland rural village where you are feeding sheep and you're throwing bags of feed around and you knew everybody played football together till like the nights coming in. Suddenly you go in a city center. No, no, that's your cubicle. That's your bus. You don't speak to anybody. You don't interrupt. You don't invade personal space. You don't like hug. You don't do it. No, no, you just blinkers on, on you go. And I think I, that's why I love projects like the Shed community. I don't know if you've ever seen that where mm. the old yeah, guys come it's together. Just, it's magical, yeah. And it's like why, like I love Meetup, for example, where they can go in and do, like I always say you should do volunteer work. Because you're giving back and you're helping and you're giving service to other people, you know. And 
all these articles about men's friends groups are patronizing. You know, it's like if you need to make friends as an adult male, majority of people have a friends group that are your university friends who then you slowly move out and you build your new friend group with your wife and your kids. It's, I think it's terrifying how we've created this like ecosystem of what it's to be a man that you've got to be out by yourself, your own little area. And it's, we definitely need more people like yourself to saying, this is BS. It's connection, not isolation. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It, 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 look, man, in the States, they call them diseases of despair. There is absolutely no reason why we should be dying younger with the resources that we have in this country, period. With the scientific acumen, with the treatment abilities, with our insights and knowledge. Dude, we have everything. And we're dying younger. And I heard one physician say, we are lonelying ourselves to death. The idea, dude, I grew up in Texas. I understand this notion of figure it out and do it yourself. I get that idea. It's not real. It's a myth. It's fake. And we've got these proxies video games dude i can put on a headset and play video games against some kid in 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 south korea in ireland in bangladesh and i can say i've got quote-unquote friends that i'm quote-unquote connecting you're not Hmm. there's a difference between communication and connection communication is transmitting data texting my wife i love you and i can't wait to see you that is not love that is not connection that is data transmission i texted her her body feels me when I walk in the door and my shoulders drop and my eyes crinkle up and I smile and say, I'm so glad to see you. And I pick up my underwear out of the bathroom. That's love. That's connection. And so cool. Keep texting your high school buddies, dude. That's awesome. I did that the other night. We were bagging on one of my buddies, guys that I've known for 30 years. It's amazing. And I can't lie to myself and use that text thread as a proxy for a body in the present in Nashville, Tennessee, 17 hours away from that place, or probably 12 hours from that place, that is screaming, hey, we have found ourselves on the plains of the United States and we have no tribe. That means we're probably going to die. We're going to die from exposure. Find people now. Find people now. Find people now. And what do we do? We climb up and we duct tape a pillow around that alarm, yelling at us, find somebody, find somebody, and we duct tape over it. With, with another drink and another drink or another Netflix show or another video game or another mm. side hustle or another project at work. And we just drown it out. What I'm finding the older I'm getting, um, it was really, really rad. I mean, it was like a lifelong dream for my last book to hit number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It was amazing. And I write about it in the book. I, uh, my boss called me instantly. It was awesome. I high-fived the people that I was in the van with. We were on a book tour, and I high-fived them. I called my mom, and I called my wife. And what I realized is as I was writing over the course of six to nine months, I started skipping the nights the guys get together. I started skipping the lunches that I have with my buddies here in Nashville. I'd quit calling my friends back, and I would just text them like, things are crazy, bro, instead of sitting down for an hour conversation. And I looked up nine months later. Dude, and I've got the best friends in the world guys that would die for me. And I sat in my hotel room with the number one best-selling book and I had nobody to call. It would have been weird to call some of my old friends 
nine months later and be like, hey, a cool thing happened to me. They'd be like, awesome, man. Cool. Where have you been? And so what did I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I put my feet under the covers and went to bed. And so, dude, it was cool. And it was hollow. And what I found in this adventure, writing another book is, man, being number one is going to be awesome. That's the goal. That's what we all want. We're shooting for it. We're doing everything we can. I got a whole team of people working for it. And I promised myself to be about the process this time to celebrate the good stuff, to be angry about the bad stuff along the way, to enjoy the adventure with people. And I think it's going to make for an infinitely better um, experience on the back end. I'll tell this story when I'm older, um, when I'm when I'm 85 years old, if I make it that long. I'm going to tell this story because it's a lot more fun than, oh, yeah, and then I went home and uh, went to bed, right? That's a, that's, that's, a, that's a lonely, lonely story. I love it. It's because... I've been in the same situation. You do amazing things and you're thinking, I've got no one to tell. Apart from family, who, who have I got to share that with? I think that's the big component is like in the book, you talk about mindfulness, the need to kind of listen and understand where the voice is coming from, rise above the automatic behaviors, understand what the alarm is trying to mention. How do you start becoming mindfulness? Because you've got some amazing prompts in the book about how to think about it, to kind of, get people's thoughts etc when we do start catching and thinking oh i'm gonna get angry no i'm not angry you step back oh i'm jealous mm. of so-and-so oh wait no that's in social media she's probably taking the photo 50 times you know you start noticing these things how do we start analyzing we are changing how do we start using the book as a kind of a start a starting block to start addressing these things how how would you want people to build the the six areas into a framework for life to become mindful you know mindful of what's happening to give back to our communities to find their tribes to do these amazing things how do we use the book as a starting point for true change in our lives i think it starts with um the very first step in the book which is you got to choose reality mm-hmm. You can make a bunch of money and you can look really good without your shirt on and you can have a number one book. Awesome. That's all good stuff. And your body knows that your marriage is falling apart. Your body knows if you roll over and get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you slip and fall and hurt your back that you have no one to call. And listen, your body would be failing you if it let you sleep all night knowing you're all alone. It would be failing you. Your body would be failing you if you have a big mortgage and a car payment and student loans and a credit card bills. It would be failing you if it let you sleep all night. All night. Why? Because one wrong statement at work and you get fired and you lose your home and your car and your ability to get groceries. Your body's on high, high alert. And our culture says that's normal. That's the way to live. And your body says, whoa, we're not safe. And so it starts with choosing reality. What's the state of your marriage? What's the state of your finances? The state of your job? What's the state of your relationships? Do you have anybody to call? And if not, that is an emergency. That is a solve that now. Even if you got to walk into a church building, even if you have to go join a bowling league, I don't care what you do. You have to make that a priority. Then when it gets to mindfulness, honestly, um, when I hear the word mindfulness, I just instantly roll my eyes. I just think of like some fat guy with a white beard on a cloud. Like, I don't have time for that. Um, here's what I mean by mindfulness. I think you can distill it down into two words. 
awareness, and curiosity. Most men, most of the time, are going through life highly unintentionally and very judgmentally. Hmm. We are on autopilot. We outsource everything. We outsource our rage to a political party. We outsource our fears to the internet. We outsource our job to some boss who is um, making way more money than we are because they took on all the risk because we were too scared to go try something on our own. Whatever the thing is, we outsource everything. Everything is unintentional. And then we judge everybody. That guy just cut me off because he's doing drugs and he sucks. That guy just did that because he votes for that guy because he's, you know, we don't know. And what we do with those stories, um, you may have heard me tell this. Think about the guy that cuts you off on the highway. He just cuts you off. You instantly grab the wheel really tight. Your forehead gets all red and you start either out loud or inside. That guy, the stupid millennial kid listening to his terrible house music, that, right? You crank, like that guy sucks. He's going to kill somebody. That guy has no idea you're even behind him. No idea that you're mad. You are choosing mm-hmm. a stroke. You're choosing cardiovascular issues. You are choosing um, a heart attack, right? Or that guy cuts you off and you grab the wheel tight and you instantly go, Mm-mm, and you let go. You exhale. And you think to yourself, dear God, help him get to the hospital before his wife dies. And that story that you crank out leads you towards a lower blood pressure, a little bit more empathy, a little bit an inch closer to humanity. And here's the thing. I get to pick that story. One of those is automatically I grabbed the wheel and got scared and pissed off and I started judging him. The other one. I instantly felt my body tense up and I was aware of it. And I asked myself, why is my body trying to protect me from a guy in a little Kia right in front of me or in a Honda Civic that is low to the ground? And he went to the store, to the muffler shop. And I was like, I want it to sound like this. Like, what, why is my body trying to defend myself against that guy? And then I'm going to be curious. Ah, Cause he almost, he cut me off and he's not paying attention. Maybe he's not paying attention because his mind is on his dying wife. I get to pick the story. Yeah. And so Judd Brewer, um, the anxiety guru, he, he said something really powerful. He said, this sort of shift in focus, whew, it's really, really hard. Because those internal dialogues, those internal automated responses, our body automates those things on purpose because we don't have time to think when it's trying to keep us alive. Those are hard. So a millisecond, before you respond to your wife is a huge win. A millisecond before you look in the mirror and go, I'm disgusted. Hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. I've been really busy lately. I've been really busy. I'm aware. I can see that I don't, I'm not looking as good as I used to. I'm aware that I've put on 25 pounds. I'm owning reality. I'm choosing reality here. I'm gonna be curious about that. Oh man. I let work take over. I've let X, Y, and Z take over. I'm going to head back. I'm going to make a commitment to myself to head back. And then I'm going to, I'm going to be aware. I'm going to be curious, man. And one of those approaches, one of those paths is going to lead me. Here's, here's what's beautiful. It's going to lead me to a mental and physiological and relational position to do the most amazing things for my community, for my family, for myself, for my friends. The other one is going to feels powerful in the moment and it's going to put me in the grave. It's going to make me useless for my community. Jocko calls it detachment. Um, Dr. Brewer calls it mindfulness. I don't care what you call it. You have to step back and you have to practice the skills of stepping back 
exhaling and say, what's the smartest move? Not the move that's going to feed my ego, not the move that's going to make me feel strong. I can post about on Instagram. What's the wise move right now? I'm going to pursue that. And we're going to go that route. And that's something, bro, that's something we practice and we practice and we practice and we fail and we get mad and we swear at the dude. We flip the dude off in the car next to us. We have that other drink and that other drink. We start to text that woman back that we're not married to. I'm going to practice. I'm going to start being aware. I'm going to start being curious. And my promise is if you practice long enough, your default setting will begin to shift. And when, when something wild happens, your body actually, whoosh, it drops. It gets slow. It's, things slow down. You're able to make good decisions in a moment of stress and, and, and chaos because you've practiced it. Because in in the book you do mention the need to do hard things, to you know there's that uh, chapter on belief, where you you mention that you don't care your people's polit- uh, religious beliefs, but it's to understand that there's like a higher purpose to you doing stuff. Do you think that's maybe something that would help so many people? Is the we are kind of consuming because when I stopped just endlessly going through collecting, you know, blog posts and videos about how it could be fixed, I'd actually just went out and exercised, helped my grandpa with his shed, you know, actually started doing things, you know, because I love that quote, create, not consume. I always, if I'm struggling with intrusive thoughts, jealousy, anger, I go to a jiu-jitsu class or I create yes. a, a blog post or a snippet video of a podcast do you think that's what guys need to realize is to do the hard work, to do the steps and have a mission outside of themselves to realize our yes. we're here to give back to the world, to make it better for their currently and future generations? Yeah, there's two, two, two important things I want to touch on here. Number one, what you just said, yes. How many of us have spent more time researching the next workout plan than just going to get the freaking workout done? right? Mm. We would have been done. We would have already been finished by now. How many of us have um, researched the perfect, like how to be like spot the right girl and how to find the right date. Just go call somebody. Just get on the phone, man. Just <laughs> swipe learn. right. If you have to <laughs> just go right. Um, yes. Like, how do I make friends? How do I make friends? Just say, yes, I'll show up. I'll, right. Mm. So I think we have a cultural addiction to data, to more data. And as our microscopes have gotten more and more um, finite, and I'm saying microscopes metaphorically, we're now, we don't wait every quarter to see how Apple did. Now, because of technology, we have a minute by minute performance algorithm for how they are doing at 4 p.m., at 4.01 p.m., 4.02 p.m. And we think that that's providing us with more insight. It is not. It's making us insane. Um, trends tell the, pic, tell, tell the story not these little micro moments. And we get really excited and really sad, really excited, really sad. And we miss the forest for the trees, right? We're so obsessed with each little piece of bark on every tree. We don't realize that the forest itself is sick or that the forest itself is doing amazing, right? So we have this cultural addiction to more data. Get off the blog posts and go create something awesome. Go rake your neighbor's yard. You're feeling low, go rake your neighbor's yard. Charge them no things, nothing, nothing. Just go rake it for no other reason. Go to a local food pantry and just start filling bags. Just go, right? Um, so that's uh, that's number one. The second thing about belief, um, it is about service, but it's deeper than that. Um, 
everyone from Jordan Peterson to Esther Perel, all across the political aisle, all across um, deep thinkers from psychologists to theologians and everybody in between. For all of human history, people walked outside of their tents and they fell to both knees and looked to the sky and said, dear God, please rain or dear gods, please rain. Because if you if it doesn't rain, my kids die. And over the last 150 or so years, we've created a world that where we've solved many of the problems that have been plaguing humanity for all of human history. You can pull out your cell phone and literally punch a button and food will show up at your front door already cooked. It's done. Even you can get a date too, delivered. Yeah, to you can have, have a date delivered. That's right. You can have a mate. That's right. Um, used to you had three or four potential mates in your little tribe, and now you have everyone on planet Earth. Swipe right or swipe left. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have little knobs in our house that just pump clean drinking water into our living rooms, into our bathrooms. We have a button that we push that takes away our our poo and pee for god's sake and in do it solving for these things which by the way i'm super grateful for food delivery and for clean water in my home and for waste management i i dude what an amazing time to be alive and solving for those problems have made us very very arrogant that the world now revolves around us and if you look at some of the tenets of psychology some of the great theorists the goal of doing all the quote unquote hard work was self-actualization that you finally become the shining beacon on the hill. And I think if we look around our world, we're there, we're self-actualized. We have everything and we're finding out in real time with very chaotic consequences. The self can't hold the self was never designed to hold up the universe. What does that mean? In an age of sarcasm and pessimism and eye rolls and great um, religious um, tragedies that go on behind closed doors, I'm thinking of like the abuse scandals and things like that. It's been very easy to take our arm and wipe off the table any sort of religion, any sort of belief in God or a higher power or whatever you want to call it and say that's that's for children. That's for fairy tales. As for me and my house, we worship the scientific method and we worship muscles and, and might. We're heading forward. And I'm going to tell you, your body over centuries has evolved to take a knee to something bigger than itself in service and in reality. And so me and my family, we follow Christian practices. That's who we are. That's, that's the belief structure that guides our house. Great. I've got friends who are atheist. I got friends who are Jewish. I got friends who are Muslim. I don't care what your belief system is. What I'm telling you as a cornerstone of a non-anxious life is you have to stop trying to hold the universe up because you simply cannot. My atheist friends, um, who I love dearly, they're my close, some of my closest friends, their kids play with my kids. They might believe in the birth and life and death and resurrection cycle of nature, that they're going to live this life and die and become part of the soil and a tree's going to grow. Great. You have to do the work to begin to believe in something. And for some of us, that is getting over our arrogance or our hurt or our religious trauma, and I'm going to go back into a church building. For some of us, that's sitting down with a friend and saying, I don't even know how to believe. I don't even know what that means. For some Mm -hmm. of us, it's like, hey, tell me about your faith. And they may be like, well, we're going to talk about that here. And it's like, I do. I'm going to learn. Like, teach me. Whatever it is, it's about opening your hands up and saying, dear God or dear gods, please reign. 
because the world doesn't revolve around me. Usually, if you do that, that leads you to a life of service for your community and um, beyond. But I think the starting point is a place of humility. I'm not the center of the of the of the of the universe. I can't believe we've been talking about an hour. It feels literally ten minutes. I've, I've got to do a round tune because there's so much from the book. You know, there's probably a chapter per podcast. You know, like in there. Something I did notice was that I use as I was reading it, it gave me such sort of hope and kind of mm. explained things. And I knew that with a ten with two chapters, I already purchased your other book, uh, "Only in Your Past for a Better Future." <laughs> to Thanks, me, that, man. yeah. To me, that was just like this guy gets it; he understands it. And how how did writing the book? Because you're very personal in this book. You give like very like potentially damaging stories out about yourself and what happened in the past. Mm. And it's a, it's a very vulnerable thing to do that you're, but you're open and you're honest and I know it'll help people, but how did this help you kind of come to terms with that? And since you become a father, how have you understood anxiety and these kind of issues to then help your kids not I don't want to say relive to avoid your mistakes, but to understand them so they can make better decisions in the future. Yeah. So um, I'll butcher the quote, but I always love to roll back to the great C.S. Lewis quote. The definition of friendship is, oh, really? I thought I was the only one. And now our picture of friendship in the modern era is through a glass darkly, right? It's, it's, I'm going to, curate my life what i allow you to see and so i'm going to make sure you only see the best pictures i'm going to make sure you only see the bright spots i'm going to make sure even my closest friends i don't yeah. call them and say hey dude i'm worried about my light bill i call them and say hey dude i'm number one right um and i think that that shiny imagery is hiding a um, a bunch of people that aren't waving they're drowning right and so um i think the time is now for a group of a generation of leaders and people who have some sort of visibility, whether you are the head of a 12 man plumbing crew or you are a political leader or you're an author, whatever, somebody with a quote unquote expertise to open the curtain and say, Hey man, I'm trying to figure this out too. Um, I don't have it all together. I know, I know intellectually the path and also I'm caught off guard by how much it hurts when my seven-year-old daughter says something, right? I, I was caught off guard by that. Um, I can lift a lot of weights and I did jujitsu for a lot of years. And dude, my seven-year-old daughter just cut me to the core, man. Like, and, and that wasn't in the, that wasn't in the guidebook, right? No. Um, what happens is a bunch of men have seven-year-old daughters that say something that make them want to wither and, and turn to dust. They sure as hell aren't going to say that out loud because they've never seen somebody say that out loud. I'm done with that life, man. Um, there was a, a chapter early on called The Biology of Secrets, and my editor said, dude, that's that's a level of nerd that nobody wants to read. Um, my contention is that secrets will kill you. Untold stories will kill you. And so um, I'm done with that life. I'm done with that life. Um, let's put it out there. Let's have the conversation. Let's move on. Um as it comes to having kids, um, man, I've, I've become a lot more, um, graceful with myself. I'm trying to do something that I don't have a roadmap for. Um, I'm trying to become a dad that I've never seen exist before. And by the way, my dad's still alive. He's an amazing guy. 
He's an incredible guy. Um, but I'm trying to do something a little bit different and I don't have a roadmap for it. And so hmm. similar, if somebody opened, turned on the lights to a basketball court and they handed me a round ball and said, go play basketball. My first couple of years of shots would look awful. The ball would be bouncing all over the place and my shot would be weird. And um, I would need some coaching. I would need some instructional videos. I'd need a picture of what this looks like. And um, over time, I'd figure it out. And then I need some sparring partners. I need some guys to come in and say, whoa, you shoot like that? That's amazing. Or, dude, I want to be able to do that, to dribble through my legs like that guy just did. And so having a group of men around you. And so having kids has, um, I still get anxious. My body's still there. I don't want to live in a house without a smoke detector, right? So my body gets anxious because it's designed to, and that's a good thing. What I let that anxiety do now is lead me towards to a solution. It doesn't scare me and make me run away. And when I'm faced with an anxiety that I don't understand, dude, I just call my counselor. I call a group of men that I've invited into my life um, and who has invited me into their life. And I deal with it that way. And so it's yeah. a very open-handed. I'm, um, dude, writing this book, it, it about did me in um, because about halfway through, I realized, oh, I'm living a very anxious life because of the choices I'm making. And here I am writing a book to everybody. And so about halfway through <laughs> that book went from me lecturing the world on how to live an unanxious life to me pulling up a bar stool and saying, you know, I'll take one and looking down the bar and being like, Hey guys, uh, I thought I was the only one. And so it's, it's a, it's definitely me walking with you, not at you, man. Cause that's a great chapter at the end where you kind of went, I realized I wasn't living the life that I was talking about. So I need to do it myself. And, I, yeah. I really related. I was like, I wasn't living the life that I was portraying on this podcast. And I've only started doing that recently. And I'm dealing with flaws and my own intrusive thoughts and stuff. And it's, it, I think that's the thing is by putting it out there, it releases the power. But it, yeah. that helps people who have never maybe had a masculine person or a father figure or whatever you want to call it in front of them. So you've given them a framework. You've given them a guide to say, this what didn't work for me. Try these things till you find your own way. You know, go and give back. Go and help find your tribe. Go and help other people. And I think that'll make a better, much better world. You're shaping people and saying, "Go and find yourself. Try this. Find this. Trial that." It's it's a beautiful message you're giving, and I would have happily read that chapter because two chapters in, I'm buying your other book. That's how good. You, <laughs> that's how good you are. And I know well, now only... you know a guy. I'll just, now you know a guy, so I'll just ship him to you. So no worries. Well, I was, I'm struggling not to go into my own personal staff, and you know, so we've got we've got to do a round two. But what would you want people to take from this? What would you want them as a, a summary, a way to use your book? If they came to you in six weeks, if they phoned you up and said, "I read your book," what would you want them to hear or to say? What do you want them to take from this episode? Wow. Um... That you're worth something different. That you're worth um, going to bed at night because you're tired mm. without a bunch of meds. That you're worth getting up and having coffee in the morning because you like it, not because you have to. That you're worth um, a boss that doesn't abuse you and you're worth um, you deciding what you do tomorrow, not your um, your vehicle lending bank. You're worth a marriage and a relationship with your significant other um, that brings you more laughter and warmth than it does stress. And you're worth a relationship with your kids where they don't just walk in the house and slam the door in the bedroom and bury their face in a screen. 
Um, and you're worth getting up and doing really hard stuff. Yeah. You're worth, um, you're worth being the man that we all need in this culture, both now and in the future. And that means getting up and doing hard things, real hard things, putting yourself in really challenging situations so you can grow. It also means asking yourself, why am I doing this? And for who? And plugging in with your spouse, plugging in with your friends, plugging in with your community, being a, being a teammate and a tribe member worth um, laying down your life for. And so it's all of it, right? It's all of it. But it ultimately comes down to, dude, you're worth that. And none of us got that message. You're worth that. Let's start there. What happens if you have somebody, because I had this when I was, um, when I was just starting the podcast. Somebody said to me, uh, they had committed a crime. They wouldn't say what it was, but they felt worthless. They felt like, oh, what's the point? And I remember saying, try, you know, do this, um, was a volunteer, go and do this, etc. And I interviewed a couple of amazing people, and one of the quotes was, "Don't tell me what's, um, you know, you're happy to admit. Tell me what keeps you awake at night that you're terrified to admit." How would you deal with somebody like a guy coming and saying to you, "I was in jail. I was this. I was that," you know? Because so like I, um, the nomadic paddler I interviewed, he said. People feel that when you go to jail, you're a prisoner and that's it. You can't change. You become a number. It's like a self-persilling mm. prophecy. You're going to just commit crime after crime and go back in. How do we start changing people to believe that no matter how bad it was, you have a future, you have a, a role to play in society? Have you have you come across guys that struggle with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, all of us do, man. Um, and it, it might be a crime. It might be the way we treated somebody when we were 12. Hmm. I'm still haunted by an interaction I had in a middle school cafeteria where a, a young girl poured her heart out to me. And dude, if I could go back and have that back, you know what I mean? And that's just one of a long line. That's not a crime. It still haunts me. Hmm. It still haunts me. And so um, because I've got some voices in my head that I heard when I was 12 they're still rattling around. Right. And so, um, I think you have to pull your headphones out to be honest with you. Cause we live in a culture that is so disempowering. You are the worst thing you've ever done. That's who you are. Or you're the worst thing that ever happened to you. You were sexually abused. You were born the wrong color in the wrong part of town. You love the wrong way. You will always be less than always. And somebody has got to come get you because you're less than. Oh, you did this when you were a kid. Oh, you did this 15 years ago. Oh, you sent this tweet because you didn't understand that this was hurtful. You're done. Mm. As a society, we are finished with you. And so I think you have to pull your headphones out because that's the cultural air we breathe. And you have to get around other people, sometimes just one or two. And you have to look in the mirror. You have to put both hands on the sink and you have to look into the mirror and say the words, I'm not the worst thing I've ever done. And if I go through my trauma history, there's probably a context there. I'm not the worst thing I've ever done. I'm not the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I am worth being loved. You might, because of what you did, have to reconcile that behind bars for the rest of your life. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, your wife might still leave you if you cheated on her. Your kids, if you were abusive, they may for years and years and years and years not find you a safe person to be around. Okay. Every time I've sat with somebody, Ian, over the years, no matter how hard it is, a child passed away 
marginalization, racism, poverty, whatever the issue is, we almost always land on this same question. So what are you going to do now? And what we know about psychology and what we know about theology and what we know about the human mind is you can't flog it. You can't beat it down. You can't shame it into action. You just shut it down and you force people to fight you. And I'm done with that world. I'm done with that world, man. Um, you have to believe, even if you're faking it till you make it at the beginning, I'm worth being loved. And I've got to find a path back to becoming lovable. I am worth a peaceful life. It took me and my wife 15 years to pay off our debts. 15 years. We dug ourselves quite the hole. And by we, I mean mostly me. Dug ourselves an impressive hole. It took 15 years. Decade and a half. It was not a quick trip. But she was worth it. I, I am too. And now I decide what I'm going to do tomorrow. Not the bank. Right? That's a different proposition. Sometimes it takes 15 years. Sometimes you're going to be reconciling with what you did for the rest of your life. So be it. And you're still worth being loved. The people who have hurt me in my life, some of them, I will never talk about it publicly. They're worth being loved. They did some pretty rough stuff. But them living in a life of misery. You know, I, um, you might edit this out, and so that's fine if you do. I remember um, the woman, and her name escapes me, and I'm, I'm so sorry. She was the woman who sent the first Me Too tweet. The very first one that said Me Too and kind of launched that whole movement. Um, the sexual assault movement here in the States, uh, the, 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 not the sexual assault movement, but the me too movement, the, Oh, that happened to me too. And that happened to me too. And, and these yeah. just countless women coming forward and saying what happened. And then, um, one of the famous guys, I think it was the, um, head of, um, the film studio was arrested uh, for Wines, Harvey Weinstein was it? Yeah. Harvey Weinstein. That's right. Mm. And I listened to an interview with her and it was really profound. Because she said, um, uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah, Burke, Toronto Burke, yes, um, really, really brave person. Um, Toronto Burke hit, hit, the first, hit the first tweet that said, me too, hashtag me too. Um, whenever Harvey Weinstein went to jail, she said that her account got blown up with, hooray, finally, I hope he gets raped in jail too. I hope he gets what's coming to him. And she said, people didn't, don't get it. I want there to be no more assault. That's what I'm here for. Not for everyone to get theirs. I want this to stop. People to stop treating themselves this way. Stop treating other people this way. That's the goal. Not retribution and revenge and war. It is stop. And I think most of us have gone to war with ourselves. I think most of us cannot stand the person we see in the mirror. Enough. Enough. You're worth being loved. I don't care what you've done. You may have right. to pay a societal penance for it. Great. You're worth being loved. Period. I think that'll help so many people because I was feeling that just now. My brain was going, but once if you hate yourself, because I hear that a lot of people saying, oh, I, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not, I don't deserve that. And, you know, people I've interviewed have said, I've interviewed guys who have killed 10 people. And he said, they still are worth, they're still worth it. And I think that's the problem is I used to say, to, oh, that person cut me off, treat me badly, bullied me, whatever. Oh, well, I hope they're doing okay. Whenever I would feel angry, jealousy, whatever to them, I'd say, I hope they're doing well. And that cut out all the bad behavior, the it stopped the, the track of the negative emotions. 
I still was just eating myself up. I was a dick younger. I've done bad things and stuff. You know, never got caught and all that. I feel regret now, 15, 20 years later. But I know that I have to justify that by being a better person and doing good things, helping others. And it's sad that we destroy ourselves. We won't do what we'll do to other people. We won't allow them the the mercy of saying, okay, I hope you're doing well. And I think yeah. that's and what you're you, helping with this book. Well, if you can't forgive, um, if I hang on to the things that other people did to me when I was a kid, it's a choice I'm making in the present to mm. die a little bit younger, to not be present my, with my wife and kids because I've spun my body up. And it's a choice that I am making in the present to allow that person that hurt me so many years ago to continue to hurt me right now. And I'm not going to give them that power. Their, their, their power over me is over. It's done. I make it sound really simple. That's a lot of counseling and a lot of therapy <laughs> and a lot of hard work and a lot of journaling, right? It's, that's years. But choosing to not forgive, choosing to wish ill on people is that old AA saying, it's drinking poison, hoping somebody else will die. That person's going about their day. They're not thinking about me one second. And so I'm not going to give them any more real estate in my mind and my body than they've already taken back when I was young. Right. And that's also the versions of me 15 years ago. People say I did bad thing 15 years ago and I'm not that guy anymore. Thank God. None of us are. My 15 year old version of me 15 years ago, that guy was an idiot. <laughs> A stone idiot. Thought he knew everything. Guy was a moron. You've got another one and, here. <laughs> <laughs> but that guy was doing the best he could with the tools he had. Yeah. And that guy was trying to achieve success with the only roadmap he had in front of him. And the way I changed that legacy is I'm going to make sure my son has a bunch of different roadmaps and a bunch of different pictures of what success looks like in different men that he can call on and rely on. And... um I think that's how we change. That's how we turn the turn the whole thing around. I love it. And if, uh, when the and war if, ends up in a pile of bodies, right? And if that's what we're here to do, to realize, you know, we had to go through that to then make sure we give back and help others, I think that's worth it. And I think that's what we're figuring out now. I, I think, honestly, the book is going to change so many lives. You're going to help shape so many young people to go and become the people who they need to be or could be, not who they are by you know, society, parental abuse, manipulation, whatever you want to call it, or what society shows is meant to be men. So it's a fabulous book. You're doing amazing work. Just this alone will have helped so many people. Um, I can't wait to get you back on, but how can we keep in touch? How can we follow your social media, the talk show, the books, just, basking your amazingness yeah you know, what how can we follow <laughs> no, the journey i think my wife would be like hey he's not that amazing she basks <laughs> in it too much not that great um um you can check out the show at the dr john deloney show anywhere there's youtube or anywhere you get podcasts and you can download it and it's just a call-in show people call in with challenges they're experiencing whether they're mental health disorders or they are um relationship issues or marriage issues or whatever um, people can call into that show and I'd love to have your listeners call in if they've got stuff that they want to bounce off a neutral third party that just committed to sit with them and we'll figure it out. Um, you can go to follow me at John Deloney. Um, my preference is that you listen to this podcast and you turn your phone off and you go do something pretty cool, whatever that might be, rake your neighbor's yard, clean your neighbor's windows, um, go fill up your neighbor's car with gas, go do something. Um, if you're going to spend some time scrolling, you can follow me at John Deloney. You can find me there. 
Um, and you can pick up this book anywhere you buy books. I'm really, really grateful for the conversation and your hospitality, man. I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.